Morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you who make an annual pilgrimage down to parents' house, uh, those of you who've come from interstate, and especially to any who might have come from overseas today to be here with family. Our Christmas preaching series here at Pathway has looked at miraculous births in the Bible. And you might be surprised to know that the birth of Jesus is not the only miraculous birth in the Bible. In fact, far from it. There are seven others. And throughout December, we have seen how each of these seven point us in some way to the most miraculous of them all, the birth of Jesus Christ. So for those of you who haven't been with us throughout this series, we have uh, touched on each of these, some in more detail than others. We've seen that Isaac was the first child to be born miraculously and from his life we learn of God's provision of a sacrificial lamb for us. Jacob was a man who wrestled with God and then in submission he clung to him and God changed his name to Israel and he uh, fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. From Joseph and Samson, we learn of our own need for a deliverer. And then we came to Samuel. Samuel was um, Israel's last judge. He was also a prophet. He, was, he acted as a priest on behalf of Israel. And he uh, inaugurated the kingship in Israel. And we have seen how each of those Four roles, judge, prophet, priest and king are fulfilled in Christ. Then there was a boy who doesn't even get a name in the Bible. He was born to a Shunammite woman. Uh, he lived, he grew up and then he died quite young. But he was raised back to life. That was in the time of the prophet Elisha. And from him, uh, he points towards uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And then, of course, there was John the Baptist, uh, born uh, around about the time of Jesus and who had that very important role in preparing the way for the Messiah who was to come. Now, each of these births uh, was miraculous because they were born to parents who had either previously been unable to conceive or to parents who were well beyond childbearing years. And they function for us like little signposts that point us along the way and help us to trace the hand of God throughout history. And they all point in exactly the same direction. Each of these births in some way points us towards the Messiah who was to come. And his miraculous birth, of course, is set apart from all the others because his parents had not been unable to conceive. They were very young at the time, nor were they, you know, well beyond childbearing years. Uh, they weren't. They were right in prime childbearing years. But his mother was still a virgin when she became pregnant with the Lord Jesus. And this is the key claim uh, of Christmas, the virgin birth, and it is important. And I hope uh, to, to 
demonstrate just how important it is this morning. It is a remarkable claim, a virgin birth. And you might think that Mary was the only person in history ever to have made such a remarkable claim. And if you thought that, then you would be very wrong. Each year, the British Medical Journal puts out a Christmas edition. And in their Christmas edition, they publish some of the less traditional or more light-hearted scientific articles. Still with the same sort of scientific rigour, but just the topics are a little bit different. And in the Christmas 2013 edition of the British Medical Journal, there was a paper published titled Like a Virgin Mother. And it reported the results of ongoing interviews conducted with 7,870 young women over a period of 14 years in their prime childbearing years. Now that's quite a sizeable sample size, 7,870. Over the course of that study, 45 women, 0.5% of the sample, reported at least one virgin pregnancy. In total, 0.8% of all the pregnancies were claimed to be virgin pregnancies. And that was unrelated to the use of any reproductive technology. When the scientists looked further at these pregnancies, suspiciously, the incidence of reported virgin pregnancies was statistically much higher in girls who had previously signed some sort of chastity pledge. And there were other factors which were very strongly correlated as well, such as parental attitude to the pregnancy and whether or not the girl's parents had been able to talk openly to her about issues of reproduction and birth control. And so the conclusion of the authors of this article was not that there are miracle births happening all around us every day, rather that there is a very strong bias in self-reported data, particularly on potentially sensitive topics. And they found that issues such as fallible memory, delusion, denial, personal beliefs and wishful thinking all influenced what people will tell researchers. So it seems that Joseph is not alone in having to weigh up the claims of a pregnant virgin. And we hear statistics like these today and many of us simply can't believe that anyone, much less one in 200 someones, would ever make such a remarkable and difficult to believe claim. Naturally today, such reports are met with more than scepticism. They're met with cynicism and sarcasm and complete disbelief. And that is exactly what Mary would have faced even in her day. Mary would have lived much of her adult life with people believing either that her memory was fallible, that her thoughts were delusional, or more likely that she was simply a liar. 
And no doubt, throughout much of Mary's adult life, she had to endure sneers and jeers and rumours and suspicions from a sceptical community around her. Many, it seems, have made exactly the same claims that Mary had made. But only once in all of human history did we ever have reason to believe it. Some 30 or 33 years later, thereabouts, her firstborn son died. And three days later, he rose back to life again. It was a single act that forever changed the course of human history. But for Mary, it must have brought a tremendous sense of vindication. Because everything that she had claimed early on could now be proven true because an equally remarkable miracle had happened at the other end of his life and many, many people had seen it. The earthly life of Jesus is bookended by two of the most amazing miracles, a virgin birth and a resurrection. And they stand like giant trumpets at either end of this remarkable life, telling us to take notice of what lies within. They tell us that God has done something extraordinary, something that no mere mortal could do, something that could only be God. Occasionally, couples who have suffered infertility for a long period of time do conceive naturally without medical intervention. And occasionally, women well past childbearing years do fall pregnant naturally, sometimes even well into their 50s and very rarely into their 60s. But virgins do not conceive a child. And when one does, we have to stop and take notice because God has done something remarkable. In the beginning, at creation, the Bible tells us that the earth was formless and empty. It was a barren place. But the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. God was about to do something wonderful. Mary's womb was likewise an empty and barren place until the Spirit of the Lord came upon her. God was about to do something new and something wonderful. New and wonderful, yes, but this was not something unheard of. This was something that had been foretold long, long ago. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you the sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This promised child would be born of a virgin. It would be a sign that nobody 
could miss. Even as far back as Genesis, Genesis chapter 3.15 tells us that the one who would crush the head of the devil would be the seed or the offspring of the woman. No man is mentioned, no father is mentioned. So the virgin birth speaks to us of the accuracy of the Old Testament prophecies and assures us at the same time that God keeps his promises to us. This was something that had always been part of his plan. The virgin birth is a sign for us of our own deliverance. The absence of an earthly father is the means by which the incarnation is made possible. Emmanuel, that name that was given to Jesus, means God with us. And the only way that God could be with us in human form is through a virgin birth. A child born of a human father and a human mother would have a human nature. It would be a human child. But a virgin birth is the means by which the Holy Spirit could bring together humanity and deity in one person. The virgin birth makes the incarnation possible. It is how God is with us. So while he walked this earth, Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine and that's important because if Jesus had had a human father then he would have had a sinful human nature and he could not have been the spotless sacrifice for our sins the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world human sin would spoil the perfect sacrifice so the virgin birth accounts for Christ's sinlessness and it makes our own salvation possible. Hopefully you can start to see why this one fact about the birth of Jesus is so important. You know, there's an old story told of a father and his adult son who were art collectors. And they travelled the world together, amassing many works for their collection, which they kept in the house that they shared together. And they continued doing this until their efforts were interrupted with war. And the son had to leave the father and go off to fight in the war and serve his country. The father remained in their big house, filled with so many treasured possessions. But after just a few short weeks of active service, the father received what every father in that situation dreads. He received a telegram advising him that his son had been killed in war. He died a hero, nonetheless. He died in the act of saving someone else. But he was no more. Christmas was approaching. But the father had no appetite for any of the festivities. The joy for him 
had completely gone from the season that he and his son had once so enjoyed sharing together. The thought of facing it all on his own filled him with great sadness. And so on Christmas morning, he sat alone in his home until there was a knock on the door. And at the door stood a stranger dressed in uniform. He was a soldier. And with him was a large parcel wrapped in brown paper. He introduced himself as a friend of the man's son. Actually, he said, I am the one that your son was saving when he was killed. May I come in for a few moments? I'd like to speak with you. And I have something I'd like to show you. So the man invited him in and the soldier and he began to talk. And the soldier told him how his, his life was not the only life that his son had saved in those few short weeks. He had saved several dozen other soldiers. He spoke of the son's great love for his father and of how the son had shared with them their shared love of art. I am an artist, said the soldier, and I'd like you to have this. And he handed over the parcel wrapped in brown paper. And the old man removed the brown paper to reveal an image of his own son, painted in striking, lifelike detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier and assured him that this painting would take pride of place above the mantle in his home. And sure enough, after the soldier left, he set about taking down several of the priceless artworks that already hung above the mantle and replacing it with this image of his son. It became his most prized possession. And the rest of Christmas Day was sat in his big armchair gazing up at that image of his son. He later told his neighbour that it was the greatest gift that he had ever received. Most of the next few months were set, spent in that armchair, gazing up at the image of his son. Late the following year, the old man became ill and he himself died. And the art world waited in anticipation for the sale of the old man's art collection. His will stated that all of his artworks were to be auctioned on Christmas Day because that was the day when he had received his greatest gift. And so it was on Christmas Day that private collectors and representatives from galleries from around the world gathered in anticipation of what was to come. The auction began with a painting that was on nobody's wish list. It was, of course, the image of the old man's son. The auctioneer called for opening bids. He suggested a mere $100. But the auction house fell silent. He tried again and again. There was extended silence and then jeering from the back of the room. Who cares about that painting? It's just an image of the old man's son. Forget it. And let's get on with the good stuff. But the auctioneer was adamant 
that everything must be sold. He tried again to get an opening bid and someone stood up at the back and offered $50. It's all I've got, he said, but I was the old man's neighbour and I knew his son and I'd like to have the painting. And so the auctioneer accepted the bid. He called for counter bids, but there were none. The room was quiet again. The gavel fell. The painting was sold for $50. The crowd cheered. And the heckler from the back shouted out, now let's get on with it. The auctioneer looked at the crowd that had gathered and announced that the auction was over. Stunned, the crowd once again fell silent until the heckler shouted from the back, what do you mean it's over? What about all these other works? There's hundreds of thousands of dollars of artwork here. What do you think you're doing calling the auction off? And the auctioneer replied, it's quite simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. And how like those art collectors we are at Christmas as we clamber for more food and more functions and bigger and better gifts and as shopping and cooking and wrapping and family end of year celebrations and holiday plans, all of them compete for our time and our attention. And in the midst of all of this, the greatest gift ever given gets somehow overlooked. Therefore, says the prophet Isaiah, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. You could not think of a clearer sign than that if you tried. It is a sign of prophecies fulfilled, of promises kept. It is a sign of God's great love for us. It is a sign of his acting on our behalf. It is a sign of great hope. It is a sign that God came near. It is a sign of deliverance for all who would take the Father's Son as their own. Whoever takes the Son to be their Lord and Saviour gets it all. All of the Father's priceless treasures, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, peace that passes all understanding, joy and hope, the hope of eternity. All of these things are ours if we will take the Father's Son to be our Lord and Saviour. The virgin birth reminds us that this is all a work of God's grace. It is God's doing. It was him that took the initiative. Mary's pregnancy was a work of God and our salvation is a work of God also. God has shown his hand. He is at work in this world and he continues to be at work bringing new life to all who will accept the gift of his son. Now perhaps the events of 2023 have made it difficult for you to see God at work in your own life or in the world around you. 
Perhaps you've endured ill health. Perhaps there's been the loss of a loved one or some other form of personal difficulty that has made it hard for you to see God at work in your life. Or perhaps it is just the scenes of war that constantly fill our screens that make you wonder, where is God in all of this? Well, if that sounds like you, then you are in good company this morning. That is exactly how literary critic and poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow felt on Christmas Day in 1863. It was the middle of the American Civil War. Less than two years earlier, Longfellow had woken to the screams of his wife. Her dress had caught on fire. His efforts to extinguish the flames, first with a rug and then with his own body, failed to save her. She died and he was so severely burnt that he could not even attend her funeral. He was left a single parent to five surviving children. At times, he f his grief felt so great that he feared that he would be sent to an asylum and his children would have no one. His country was fighting a brutal civil war against itself. His eldest son had enlisted to fight with President Lincoln's Union Army and now he lay in a hospital bed with gunshot wounds to his back waiting to see if he would be paralysed for life. As Longfellow sat on that Christmas day waiting to pen his poem, he tried to capture in words what he felt in his heart and what he saw when he observed the world around him on that Christmas day. The poem he wrote was originally titled Christmas Bells and it has since been recently adapted into a carol. I heard the bells on Christmas day. Many of you will know it. The poem begins, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it continues, then from each black cursed mouth, he's talking about the cannons in the, used in the war, from each black cursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth goodwill to men. The poem continues to describe how even nature appeared to be cracking under the strain of all of the sorrow and grief and evil that Longfellow observed in the world around him. And he writes, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks a song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But as he sat alone on that Christmas morning, reflecting on the sadness in his life and the evil that there was in the world, the sound of the bells grew louder and deeper from the churches in the town. 
And we can only presume that Longfellow was reminded that sadness is not the end of joy for a believer. Neither is tragedy the end of hope and nor can war erase true peace, the peace that passes all understanding. These things are not dependent on the circumstances that we face, no matter how grave they might be. And so he penned the carol's last triumphant verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, he does not sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Above all else, the virgin birth tells us that God is not dead, nor is he asleep and ignorant of human suffering. God keeps his promises and he stepped into a world of pain and evil and he did it on our behalf. And like a giant trumpet, the miracle of the virgin birth assures us that the miracle of our own salvation is possible if only we will receive the Father's Son. He is the greatest gift and he was given for us and that is why we celebrate today on this very special day. So, whether it's today or whether it's later in the week, make time like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow to sit and to reflect, to read the sign and to receive the sun and all of the Father's priceless treasures, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, peace that passes all understanding, joy and the hope of eternity will be yours. That is God's will for each one of us and that is why he came. Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful sign of the virgin birth, a miracle that is beyond our understanding, that tells the world today that the baby in the manger was Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, Saviour of the world. We worship you on this day. May your name be glorified as the miracle of new life lives in each one of us. Amen.